0: I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water.
1: It's about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward.
0: Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and Movement Masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Line Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, In today's beautiful episode, I got to have my soul sister, Miss Nora Goudis, back on the show. Uh, Nora is a legend in the world of ancestral health and nutrition. Um, she is the writer of Primal Body, Primal Mind, uh, and her most recent book, Primal Fat Burner. Highly recommend you guys checking that out. I really enjoyed it. Um, in this Conversation we get into uh, evolution and its impact on our brain, evol- uh, impact on our diet, uh, generally where we came from, the evolution of our minds, evolution of tools, and um, pretty pretty rad conversation. Uh, also, get into actionable tips on cultivating our testosterone, um, for reversing depression. Really good stuff. I hope you guys enjoy. Here's a little clip of the show.
0: And we know the SSRIs work very, very poorly, if at all. But in fact, it's been, um, there's this whole new understanding of it as being a cytokine model of depression. In other words, that depression is fundamentally an inflammatory condition.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to the website. If you feel called, it is at AlignedTherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N-Therapy.com. On there, you can get yourself uh, the show notes for this episode and also start the five-day movement challenge, start integrating more effective movement into your momentary existence. I have got two quotes for y'all. This is out of my man, Russell Simmons's book, Super Rich. Um, Highly recommend checking that out and also checking out, he's got a yoga studio in Hollywood called Tantras. If you guys are ever in L.A., highly recommend checking that thing out. All right. All nature loves an honest person. He need not run after things. They will run after him. That is from Sri Swami Satchidananda. I don't think I said that correctly. Uh, but I think that's an interesting point. It's cultivating your own excellence, cultivating your own work and... Um, a little bit less engagement towards reaching out. That's something I've been working on learning. Um to the mind's another quote to the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. That's Lao Tzu. You guys get that. Um, thank you so much for utilizing the Amazon affiliate link on the right hand sidebar on the podcast page, linetherapy.com slash podcast. Anytime you or your family purchase crap, just bookmark that thing, buy it through there. We get about 7% of your purchase. Cost you nothing. Beautiful way to support this podcast. If y'all send us a review on iTunes, we read it on the intro, we will send you out a box of Four Sigmatic Mushrooms. Review of the week is going to Tie-Dye Chef. Uh, Still the best, five stars, and still my favorite podcast. I so enjoy the way Aaron and his guests dig deeper to find hidden meanings. Not always the what, but also the why's. Also exploring possible connections where none were previously identified and in a super fun way, like a couple of friends just hanging out, solving the problems of the world. Thank you so much, Tie-Dye Chef. Hit us up on any social media at uh, Align Podcast, A-L-I-G-N Podcast. Uh, Hit us up on Instagram. That'd be great. I'm posting all sorts of interesting movement-related wacky videos on there, so I hope you guys enjoy that. All right, here we go. Back to the show recorded in the beautiful Miss Norgi living room in Portland, Oregon. I hope you guys enjoy.
0: Ciao. Podcast.
1: As you were talking about uh, testosterone, like exogenous supplements and stuff, is kind of something that's popping up of like in the spring, pine pollen that acts as like an exogenous testosterone supplement in a sense, right? Right, yeah.
0: No, I, I think that, that, that it's used to enhance testosterone, and I haven't looked at the pine pollen thing that closely, whether it is a precursor or whether it is kind of a mimicking. Uh, testosterone and its effects. If it's a mimic, I'm more nervous about it than if it's something that just sort of serves as a precursory uh, nutrient. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I, I prefer to see my body make its own supply of whatever it needs from the available substrates. And my whole thing is very, I'm very foundational and very functional in my thinking. If something is you know, say, oh, okay, there's there's estrogen deficiency here. Well, why is that? Oh, well, it could be this. You know, like there's there's a problem with cortisol. Well, why is that? Mm-hmm. You know, rather than immediately just reaching for something to supplement to fill in the gaps as though my body were too stupid to make its own, I want to understand what the communication processes are that are happening or miscommunication processes are and where, where those are originating so that I can correct the problem from the bedrock up you know as opposed to just throwing supplements at symptoms and all too often you know you go to a functional medicine practitioner and you say yeah i'm depressed they're like oh here's some st john's wort you're not fixing anything you know it's it's no different really other than fewer side effects than throwing prozac at the problem um so figuring out what you know where these issues are actually arising in the first place and just digging down and um, and so and and all too often too what you find with almost any especially natural health care providers you know their focus is typically on whatever it was that helped them you yeah, know so somebody you know yeah they well. they had a parasitic problem and they, they 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 addressed it and their health came back and so now they're seeing you know parasitic issues in all of their patients that's the thing the thing you know that's going to correct your health or you know uh the whole mthfr thing oh it's all about that i mean even ben lynch wouldn't say that anymore um but you know or you know i've got it whatever it is uh whatever the issues might happen to be that were the thing that helped a particular practitioner That becomes their pet project, and that's, there's an old adage, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and I really, really work at not being that way. I don't have to work that hard at it, because my thinking goes in a lot of, I I can think from a lot of different perspectives. I've done a lot of different things in my life, and I've looked at health from a lot of different angles, and so I've got a lot of really great tools in my toolbox, and it's not just about you know, macronutrient ratios or, you know, low carb diets or, you know, whatever. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that.
1: Yeah. The other, the other night we were talking about, um, just like uh, kind of this illusion of separation that we have from each individual self is it's like, okay, I'm in my little, we we're talking about bunkers this morning. Like, right. I'm in my little bunker. And then yeah. it's like, protect this, keep this safe. Everything else sucks. right you know, It's just like, it's me, me, me. But then it's interesting the the, how just the effect of say for example have you ever heard like the studies of like changing your outfit changes your mm. testosterone levels get yourself in like your dream car your Lamborghini whatever <laughs> all of a sudden you're like wow testosterone <laughs> surge sure sure you know, it's really fascinating and then like the bee pollen or not the pollen it's pine pollen probably bee pollen too uh, but the pine pollen thing it's like okay cool like so I'm just walking through the woods here yeah. and I'm kind of a part of this testosterone search just because I'm in this environment. Mm-hmm. It's a really fascinating thing to, even from like a, a conversation around like nutrition or, you know, whatever, trying to affect our, our hormonal balances, looking at maybe your environment is your hormonal balance. Maybe it's one in the same thing. So right. how can we start to?
0: Well, we have this illusion of, of, you know, our connection to the environment sort of stopping at the surface of our skin. But, you know, if you look at things from a quantum mechanics level, there really is no such thing as individual objects that are separate from anything else, right? It's all part of the same thing. And again, you know, we're still in our culture very much caught up in a Newtonian paradigm. And that's very appealing to, um, if it isn't to, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, metaphysical to talk about, but egoic consciousness. Right? The, the the human ego, and I'm not talking about being egotistical, it's it's more this sense of I, this sense of me as being a unique separate um, thing from other things around you, from from the environment, from other people. And that's a pure illusion, but the more we're caught up in that, the more adversarial we view our surrounding environment You know the ego is there. I I actually kind of think of it as as like a German Shepherd or something like that. It's it's a useful uh, companion to have to alert you to things that may be dangerous in your environment. You know if you know if I'm asleep in my bed at night and somebody breaks into my house, I want that German Shepherd to bark and let me know. Of course I have a cat, but you know what I mean. So and and he doesn't care. He's always happy when people come to visit, aren't you, Opus? Opus. But that said, um, but I don't want that German Shepherd running the household. I, I don't want it running the show. It's something that, you know, um, you want to cultivate a relationship with it where it knows its place. It's there to be a, a helpful companion and to not get in the way of of other things. And unfortunately... Our culture, everything about it, is cultivated toward that sense of separation, and not just the sense of separation, but the adversarial um, paradigm, where you have Democrats versus Republicans, and women versus men, and black versus white, and other you know, ethnicities versus other ethnicities, and this religion versus that religion, and paleo versus vegan, and whatever the hell else, if I can use that yeah. raw terminology um and there is an old you know the oldest um control tactic in the world is something called uh, divide and conquer you know the degree to which we see ourselves as separate from the uh, from others and from the environment around us is the degree to which we're highly malleable and we're much more likely to be motivated by fear and survival instincts than we are by you know, the the higher qualities of what make us the most truly human in the best possible sense. Uh, You know, that, um, that more kind of enlightened state of of recognizing one's, um, one's place within the entire kind of web of life. You know, anybody that has had either uh, extensive experience with meditation and you know I'm a meditator and um, um, I like to do at least an hour a day if I can um, I don't always I don't, don't always get that but I've done up to a couple hours a day mm-hmm. and you know cultivating that base sense of of you know, shutting down the narrative, shutting down the monkey mind that likes to claim ownership of your identity, which it isn't, and more so uh, coming into an alignment with that internal higher observer and recognizing that absolutely everything is a part of who you are. Everything that you see is a reflection of some aspect of yourself and that there really is no um space, there really is no time, all of those things. I think indigenous cultures um had that balance where they knew they had to deal with what felt like the external illusion uh you know external nature of of things in their environment, you know they had you know had to hunt for food and whatever else, and interestingly, when an indigenous person would say um hunt an animal they didn't necessarily see themselves as inherently separate from that animal they were hunting it was like an energy exchange thing right um you know we've lost that um and and it's part of the mental illness of modern society that fails to recognize you know the the rational balance between you know what it takes to survive as a corporal being in this you know particular sliver of space and time we seem to be occupying this this matrix so to speak and but also you know the recognition that we're much much more than that and uh um and i I think it's even possible for for you know atheists to come to an appreciation of that you don't have to be spiritual quote-unquote in order to embrace that concept or experience um, what's being referred to in the research now is persistent or ongoing non-symbolic consciousness, that uh, sense of connectedness to everything. Hmm. Um, And one of the ways in which I think our indigenous ancestors um, accessed some of these non-ordinary states was certainly through uh, both, you know, shamanic ritual and through also um, entheogenic use, you know, sacred plants, so to speak, and, um, and getting out of that default mode, you know, network brand of thinking and, and shifting into a more expansive and open creative consciousness that is able to take in that other reality. And then you have a balance, you know in in your society. you understand that we're all in it together, kind of a thing. Um, in Lakota, spirituality, it's Metakuyaoya sin, which is all my relatives. you know, everything mm-hmm. is a part of who we are. And where you ha- when you have that appreciation, you don't automatically view you know, every person or every situation you walk into is a potentially adversarial situation. And you become much more open to, uh, to connection and to possibility and to, um, you know, collaboration. If we're ever going to overcome the obstacles we face as a planet, as a society, as a species, we have to figure out all the ways in which um, we have shared values as opposed to um, focusing on our differences. It's it's a form of mental illness to be constantly focused on our differences and one of the most popular buzzwords today you know in natural health is bioindividuality, and everybody's different and everybody wants to think of themselves as an individual. Mm. Look individuality is all fine and good but at the end of the day What defines us as human beings is not our differences, it's what we share in common. And what defines um, whether or not we survive as a species is is going to depend upon whether we can come together on the things, on the values, you know, the positive values that we share in common and the the common um, obstacles we all share and addressing things on that level and on putting the other petty differences aside, you know. You save that for a night where you all go out for skis or something. Um, but if we're really going to get through this time period, we all have to kind of figure out what do we share as a human species in common. You know, how are we all alike, and what can we do? In, you know, in the in and uh, uh, you know, especially in in the most positive ways. Uh, and then what can we do to uh, come together on the things we need to come together on. So, um, but you know, life is just one big Jerry Springer show now. You know, it's, it's like everywhere you turn. I I won't even watch CNN. I had it's been like a couple of it's been at least a decade since I have watched you know anything like CNN or whatever. Um, I try to stay away from mainstream news because I don't see it as a source of information. I see as a source of whatever it is whoever is paying the advertisers bills want you to know about what's happening in the world as opposed to what all is actually happening in the world yeah. and most of what is depicted is negative and sensationalistic and um, and biased toward a particular narrative and uh, I you know prefer to not be subject to that narrative.
1: Do you think there's any value in the mental illness, and and what was the function of it in the first place from an evolutionary perspective? That kind of derailment of maybe you know Amazonian tribal oneness, whatever, to come into like maybe Greco-Roman times or certainly before the Persian, whatever, like to have that separation of like my land you yeah right. It, I'll kill you. right exactly you know, there's some type of evolutionary value in that you think or like why would that have happened
0: well it's like well it has to do with uh, the the adoption of agriculture It has to do with the you know the abrupt and rather violent end to the last ice age that killed off 120 species of megafauna that we'd been hunting you know and suddenly we had to figure something else out and we decided to adopt this thing called agriculture uh as as a way of creating a a food supply that allowed us to all to stay in one place and collect in um you know in in larger population centers and but we were adopting something that was extremely new to us physiologically as a, as a food source and you know civilization has its you know, pluses and minuses. I mean, it gave us safety in numbers. It allowed us to create all the things that come with, um, you know, the concentrations of populations that allow for diversified, um, you know, capabilities and workforce and the building of all the things that we consider beneficial about civilization. But it also gave us overpopulation it gave us um you know that with agriculture uh it separated us from our natural environment gave us an artificial sense of separation from our natural environment and it also helped facilitate things like you know working class hierarchies and and uh, um nation states you know <laughs> and and full-blown war hmm. Uh, we were not a warlike species prior to all of that. We really weren't. There were skirmishes, there were things that happened usually um, in a really limited scope for you know uh, having to do with um, uh things that made more sense than than what gets declared as war today. Today war is an industry that is being perpetuated by in a military industrial complex that has every reason in the world to want to foment uh, instability wherever it can. And it, it's, you know, it, it, it feeds, it's feeding this greater animal that, you know, look, the average person in the street isn't interested in going to war with anybody. Yeah. You know, it's not certainly in my nature to want to go to war with anybody. It's not a human nature thing it's a contrived thing it's it's a manipulated thing nowadays and um i you know so at any rate what we call civilization is a two-edged sword you know there there are things that it offers us that we think of as ostensibly beneficial but it's also dumbed us down a lot hmm. it's um We've domesticated ourselves, or somebody's domesticated us. However you want to look at it, uh, we have an abnormal level of complacency, and particularly in modern times, that complacency is um, is this? It's an illusory complacency because we get to live in comfortable, climate-controlled environments. And most of what threatens us now, you know, back in the days when we lived in the, in the, you know, in the woods and in the jungles, you know, it was the saber-toothed tiger that jumped out from behind the bush and chased you around. That was the immediate threat, you know, or it was severe weather conditions or something that was a more immediate threat. It was tangible, immediately tangible to us. And that's really what we're wired for. We're not wired for knowing how to become vigilant about things like, you know, EMF pollution or GMOs or air, water and, um, um, you know, and food contamination of, of, you know, with various things, uh, you know, water fluoridation, you can just sort of go, you know, radiation contamination, all of these things that are impacting us constantly. And are really challenging our ability to maintain any semblance of homeostasis. Um, and yet, you know we're busy watching celebrity bloopers you know, on TV and you know, ordering dominoes or whatever else, and not really um, not really, you know, being willing to pay attention to the fact that our survival is, has never been more challenged than it is now and i sometimes use the boiling frog analogy you know we we think you know we're like these boiling frogs that think we're sitting in a hot tub in vegas someplace while the flesh is falling off our bones um so you know we live in interesting times as the chinese curse goes you know may you live in interesting times we definitely do but it just calls for a greater, there's there's never been a greater call for higher consciousness, you know, for, um, for the ability to step outside your own box and to be more broadly aware and more broadly connected to what's going on around you. And yet everything in our modern environment, especially in this society, is geared toward you know, separation uh, is geared toward compartmentalization, is geared toward the whole idea of being alone um, against uh, forces that we seemingly have no control over. Mm. And uh, we need to be able to transcend that way of thinking. That's the same thing they do in,
1: in like prison circumstances where it's like, you don't want the prisoners to be able to come together and create a plan. That's true. The whole thing is that that separation, that isolation keeps them disempowered. Exactly. So it's, it's kind of interesting that people have so much power within the internet right now. It's like, it's kind of impressive, impressive that it hasn't been shut down.
0: Oh, well it is. (laughs) I mean, although, you know, net neutrality is really in danger of being lost. I mean, increasingly there is censorship now, um, of websites and, uh, You know, if you Google certain subjects, you're going to get a very biased Google um, when it comes to those things like, you know, vaccination or whatever. You're going to get very, very biased, you know, things um, when there's a broad variety of information to be had. But the more I mean, I think the Internet is like the greatest thing. It's it's given us the best odds of survival, actually, because of the mass access or the access to just mass bases of information from a whole variety of areas now sorting through that (laughs) and cutting the so-called wheat from the chaff is is you know an interesting challenge that comes with it but it is a very rapid way of of communicating ideas and uh and being able to access virtually any kind of information you want and that's wonderful but you know, as we were talking about last night, you know, I mean, I, I see whole families sitting at dinner tables in restaurants with their little cell phones out, and they're sitting around with each other, but they're so wrapped up in their devices that they're operating in, you know, in a in a completely in a separated way from um, from other people. I mean, it, it's a strange thing. We've never been more connected, and we've never been more disconnected because of all of the access that we have to these things. Hmm. So, you know, making time for human relationships, which I kind of think is the whole point to being here in the first place, you know. Um, it seems to me that if there is a life on the other side of some veil, most of what we need to do can be accomplished there. But here on this side, this whole I, concept of space and time uh, reality, allows us to have that sense of other and to feel connected to that sense of other and to forge relationships that give this existence meaning. And, um, you know, we can't lose sight of that. You know, it's yeah. you got to get on some kind of a diet of getting away from, um, from all of that and make time and space for the people and the things that that actually do matter.
1: I wanted to take a brief moment and thank. Sun Warrior for supporting this podcast. They are, in my opinion, the most delicious vegan protein that I've found. Um, they are raw, sprouted, and fermented for increased bioavailability and general deliciousness. Um, I hope you guys enjoy that stuff. Grab yourself 15% off on any purchase at sunwarrior.com and then throw in the align code at checkout and get yourself 15% off. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Here we go. Back to the show. Last night, last night, yeah, last night we were talking about the just what the heck it was that caused the shift in evolutionary consciousness to start making tools and making art and dancing and fire and all that coming from, you know, say we came from primates, if that's if that's your belief system or whatever. Do you have any sense of what the heck that transition was?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. Well, we've been making stone tools for three and a half million years. I mean, stone tools were one of the, among the first things that, uh, that appeared with the first hominins, but, um, but for the most part, it seems that, you know, archaeologically things are pretty uninteresting for the first, you know, couple million years, um, where, you know it's mostly just like a smattering of stone tools and you know a few bones around the you know and a few charred remains around the fire and whatever else where there's just not a whole lot of evidence of um of more sophisticated uh culture uh you know as as wild beings that we were and actually still are in in a fundamental way uh you know, there was a basic preoccupation, there, as there is with er- any wild being, you know, with survival, with reproduction, with, you know, getting enough food and water and, and, you know, assessing, you know, whatever threats might be in the environment and just kind of getting through life day-to-day, through day-to-day existence and survival. And at some point, you know, maybe around 40, 50,000 years ago, um, something really shifted with that. But I, a couple things had, had to happen for that to occur. Number one, you know, from the, you know, from our earliest, you know, our our closest primate relatives are the chimpanzee that have, you know, have a brain capacity of anywhere from 250 to maybe 500, you know, cubic centimeters. Um, And in a span of a couple million years, that tripled in an unprecedented way in all of nature to um, a maximum brain capacity that we had of about 1550 cubic centimeters. And that allowed for the development of our neocortex and of our executive brain, you know, the, the frontal lobes, the really well-developed frontal lobes that we have, that allow us to, you know, see forward and, and look behind us and uh, to evaluate things relative to the past, not just, you know, immediate threat assessment and reaction. Um, so, and that tripling of our brain structure, um, was, and, you know, and, and I write about this in, in, in my, you know, newest book, it's, it has a, um, it's called Primal Fat Burner, which sounds like a weight loss book, but uh, which it isn't. I mean, I, I think that'll be everybody's favorite side effect, but that's not the, the main thrust. It's...
1: And it gets into some of this as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I'm going somewhere with it, but, yeah. but that... The idea that you know that dietary fat was actually the strongest impetus and, and specific fats that we began um, consuming a lot more of when, once we came out of the trees and stepped out onto the savanna and began uh, and began hunting and scavenging for our food. We developed a taste for fat very early on. And it was that voracious appetite for fat and the stone tools that we developed for cracking open bones to get at marrow and and cracking open skulls to get at brain tissue that gave us this this very, very uniquely structured and composed brain where the two fatty acids most responsible for human cognition are arachidonic acid, uh, which is an animal source omega-6, and docosahexaenoic acid, which is also an animal source of fatty acid, from um, you know our ancestors mainly got it from the animals that we hunted, from the fat of the animals that we hunted. Is
1: that omega three then, or is that? Yes, it's yeah,
0: yeah. yeah it's, an, it's it's the most elongated form of omega three. You can't get it from by taking flax oil or chia oil or walnut oil. You'll never make any DHA from any of that. If DHA is not in your diet, it's not in your brain. Mm. So these 20 and 22 carbon fatty acids that are that are most responsible for our unique human cognition capacity are exclusively found within our diets, within animal source foods of, you know, of uncompromising quality. In other words, fully, you know, grass fed or fully pastured, naturally foraged animal meat and. So that would have had to have been a portion of the equation to allow for greater cognitive sophistication. But then something else, another switch got flipped along the way that opened us up to a deeper and broader way of thinking and perceiving ourselves and the world around us that was not so much based on, you know, uh, this idea of being compartmentalized beings in you know, in opposition to a surrounding and, you know, potentially dangerous surrounding environment, we suddenly began um, creating art, and we suddenly began painting these extraordinary things in caves and, and uh, things like that. And it seems obvious that there was a switch that got flipped somewhere around that time period, Anywhere, you know, 50, maybe 70,000 years ago.
1: What was the time period? Sorry to interrupt, but the, I, I love like having these numbers. I always forget them. But the time period, you said it was a couple million years that we tripled our brain. Was that what mm-hmm. it was? What was the time period for that?
0: Well, we, we became Homo sapiens sapiens 200,000 years ago. Although there's some debate about that. It may have been even a little longer ago than that. It may have been more like 350,000 years ago. because there's, there's discoveries of new hominin species that seem to refute the 200,000 year, but at any rate, you know, we'd already pretty much tripled our brain capacity by that time. I think we, we maxed out with Cro-Magnon humans at about 1550 cubic centimeters, you know, and they were, they were around 40, 50,000 years ago. Mm. And, you know, in their march across ice age, you know, Europe, um, we suddenly began And, you know, in places in Africa and other places in the world, suddenly humans began, um, uh, developed a new type of preoccupation with more of the uh, perceived unseen world, you know, around us. Uh, The idea of, uh, well, I mean, I think what it boils down to is, you know, the the birth of shamanism, the birth of the idea that we are more than our physical bodies, that there is something else, that there is an unseen world surrounding us, that there is an interconnectedness to all things, which seems to be a theme that pervades every indigenous uh, foundational philosophy. Um, And from the perspective of quantum mechanics, it's all true. I mean, it, it really is. Um, but you have to ask yourself how did indigenous cultures just sort of know that, you know, without having particle accelerators and Hadron colliders (laughs) and things like that, you know, (laughs) to sort it all out,
1: which could have existed. Well, you know, yeah, yeah.
0: Right. You know, maybe not in
1: the last like 200,000 years, but maybe like, yeah, that's a separate. That's a whole other (laughs) topic, you know, go talk to (laughs) Graham Hancock about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I would love to actually. Um, But, uh, but at any rate, um, and, and I think it had to do with the uh, sort of accidental discovery of the entheogenic kind of experience, you know. Uh, yeah. um, Terence may know McKenna called it the, the stoned ape theory, where, you know, our earliest knuckle-dragging ancestors on the savannah... You know when we as we were becoming uh, emerging as hunter gatherers, we had to follow uh, the animals that we hunted, and the way in which you track them is not just simply through their little f- their tracks and footprints, but through their droppings. And it so turns out that those droppings are a favorite growth substrate for a certain type of mushroom. Um, and there are at least thirty different mushroom eating primate species. Mm. And presumably, you know, psilocybin uh, mushrooms probably, uh, you know, were consumed by a variety of primates. Not all of them developed higher consciousness. So it's not just what these experiences afforded us. It, it has to do with having the kind of brain that has the capacity to process those experiences into some kind of meaningful interpretation, Right. And the evolution of new, um, you know, uh, uh, receptors, you know, a lot of these, you know, these ser- different serotonin receptors, of which there are 14, at least, different kinds that we know of, um, that can activate, uh, shall we say, altered states of consciousness. Um, and yet a lot of those receptors, they're, they're cholesterol-based, you know, all that kind of thing. I mean, our our consumption of animal source foods would have helped to facilitate the very rapid evolution of this much more sophisticated range of um, of neurotransmitter networks and receptor sites, and that unique ability to be able to interact with certain sacred plants as a way of broadening our conscious consciousness, and also, um, you know, facilitating our um our capacity for self awareness you know big s so um i think it's it's a concert between entheogenic plants and the kinds of brains we were allowed to develop because of the consistent a fairly consistent approach to to diet that we adopted as a hunting gathering species for, you know, for those two, three million years that allowed our brain size to to grow, not just simply in size, but in sophistication and in in unique composition. And, you know, chimps brains haven't really changed at all in seven million years. You know, they're kind of the same they always were. It's because the chimp really hadn't changed its basic diet of you know leaves and bananas or whatever and um and they kind of remained in their uh sort of comfortable uh ecosystem that the comfortable type of habitat that they have always sort of occupied and it was it was the evolution i guess you can say of these hominid species that allowed for uh, allowed us to kind of break out of that mold and begin developing a very different type of brain and consciousness and way of thinking about things. And it's all sort of, shall we say, mushroomed into the, so to speak, the um, into who and what we are now. And there's that old Einsteinian quote of that, uh, you know, we can't solve the problems of the world, with the same uh, kind of thinking that created those problems, and I like to say that you know, uh, you know, I, 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 that's obviously true. But I'm also inclined to say that we can't solve the problems of the world with the same dysfunctional brain we had when we created it. Hmm. Um, and so, in part, what we need is to, you know, restore the the kind of diet that actually supported our brain's evolution, which, by the way, um, we've lost just over 10% of our brain volume over the last 10,000 years that we've adopted a largely um, carbohydrate-based diet. And we've increasingly shed our emphasis on these animal fats and have moved much more toward um, this kind of monoculture, agriculture paradigm of foundational nutrition. And when we first adopted agriculture, we lost literally half our lifespan, Uh, expected life expectancy, rather. Um, And we also began losing our brain volume in earnest. And so if if you still have a brain, you might want to feed it differently um, uh, than what the... You know the f- the food pyramid tells you to do, and but I think it also through things like meditation, through things like you know potentially in theogenic exploration, if that's a route that feels right to some people, um you know that's certainly not appropriate for everybody
1: Who's it mm-hmm. not appropriate for?
0: You know, if you have somebody who's like suffering a from a state of psychosis, you, know, you have somebody who's schizophrenic right. or, you know, that kind of a thing, um, bipolar or whatever, you might want to really you know, that may not be the best route. Mm. Um or either that or it needs to be handled with extreme caution, right? Uh, you know, depending on the kind of substance a person's gravitating to. I find fascinating that certain of these substances um really do mimic um or literally contain the exact molecular substances that are generated by the human brain naturally right, so like you know nN DMt um, you know dimethyltryptamine, which is often touted the most powerful hallucinogen on the planet, every person listening to this produces their own supply of DMT it's actually produced largely in the lungs, which I find interesting. Oh. Um, but also more recently, it has been verified that, that there, there does seem to be some production of DMT by the pineal gland in the brain. It was a hypothesis initially by Rick Strassman, but it's since research has since sort of borne that out to be okay. All right. Now we know that that's true. Um, and this extremely powerful neurotransmitter hormonal like substance that is found in such minute amounts, but it seems to have no other biological purpose other than to elicit these experiences. So there's something fundamental to that, to that altered state of reality that um, I think is incredibly important to us as a species. We wouldn't have that capacity if it weren't important in some way, shape, or form. And that's what sparked my interest a few years back um, in really, really researching these substances in earnest, and uh, realizing the symbiotic relationship that we've had with them throughout our entire evolutionary history, or certainly for at least, you know, um, quite a few thousand years that we know of. Uh, And that includes everything from, you know, hallucinogenic plants and mushrooms to things like cannabis, uh, which I think we've developed actually a very highly symbiotic relationship with as a species and you know can serve us in so many different beneficial ways and and including ways that don't even involve the need for psychoactive effects sure. so um, i think psychedelics have a lot to teach us i'm particularly interested in those that um that are naturally found within the environment that are you know, prehistoric ancestors or, and indigenous um you know ancestors would have had access to and so there's a long track record of of their use um there's something that they have to teach us about getting out of our own collective boxes um our own collective box and and our own um illusion of separation from everything and everyone around us um these are incredibly important and necessary lessons, I think, to counter what is otherwise being perpetrated by the mainstream matrix, you know, of um, everybody kind of f- for themselves. Yeah. Um, and so I, it's interesting to me that there's a renaissance now of of interest and research—I mean, really good research—and um, and use of entheogens, and I think I think they have something valuable to teach us. I don't think they always need to exert their positive benefits through their psychoactive effects. Again, there's this whole microdosing phenomenon. You know, psychedelics are among the most anti-inflammatory substances on the planet. Um, mm. And so they, they can exert enormously beneficial effects um, on brain chemistry, on inflammation, on immune function, and immune modulation um, through the subtlest doses that you would never notice as anything that you know, they got you high. But the experiences themselves are reserved, I suppose, for a select few that have the courage to dive into that type of deep experience and really, really challenge your notion of reality. There's something to be gotten from that, but it's, it's not for everybody, because not everybody is, there's some people that have a hard enough time dealing with the reality they think they have, yeah. <laughs> much less. I
1: have a, I have a uh, s- sneaky suspicion, uh, the anti inflammatory effects of, of certain substances like that may in large part be associated with like, um, emotional wellness. You know, sure. So if you're totally. having this emotional turmoil that you're just, you're always stuck in whatever yeah, yeah, that yeah. pattern is, you just repeat it over. And I'm thinking about right. the bills. I'm thinking about the da, 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 da. Right. And all of a sudden you have this free space for four hours, six hours, you know, whatever you do a, a long weekend someplace. Maybe it just doesn't need to be psyched out. Right. A trip someplace where you just kind of turn that off. I bet you any variety of that right. is an anti-inflammatory.
0: Well, there's, so, yeah. So, you know, for instance, depression, you know, is now being understood by researchers and for some time, actually, even though the, the, the medications used to treat depression are based on this neurotransmitter mo- model of depression. That's not really what depression is. It's not a neurotransmitter deficiency. And we know the SSRIs work very, very poorly, if at all. But in fact, it's been, um, there's this whole new understanding of it as being a cytokine model of depression. In other words, that depression is fundamentally an inflammatory condition. And so the degree to which entheogens can impact inflammation is um, uh, certainly a means by which they can remedy certain types of emotional um, you know, adverse kinds of emotional states. But the other part of the deal, w- one of the things that we know that entheogens do, that things like psilocybin and LSD do really, really well, is they shut down, or at least dampen, depending on how much you're taking, what's called a default mode network, this network of uh, these neuronal networks that are kind of habitual in your brain. right? And they kind of dampen or shut that down, and instead this whole range of connectivity lights up throughout and between different structures in the brain that don't normally talk to each other. So there's a tremendous potential for creative insight in those, in those altered states. Uh, and in fact, there's been some really wonderful research. I know James Fadiman did some amazing you know, research with that um, using scientists and, and, and getting them to take like a hundred micrograms of LSD and then bring their worst Um, intellectual problems. the the biggest problems that they had that they couldn't get the solution to. And they brought them into a controlled environment, gave them a specific dose of LSD, and then got, and this was when it was all still legal, and then said, okay, then get to work on whatever these problems are. And to the letter, every single one of these scientists was able to solve long-standing problems with creative solutions they wouldn't have come to any other way. Hmm. So By shutting down the default mode network, which is a good thing to do from time to time, um, get out of the rut, right, and open up a whole different way of thinking and seeing and perceiving the world around you allows for novel solutions, allows for creativity, allows for, um, I think in some ways, a restoration of that almost childlike state of wonder again. You know about the world around you, which we belittle. Yeah, well, we like, oh yeah, that's just you know, I mean, we think it's really cute and really you know special that little kids you know are, um, are so so amazed by everything. But, um, you know, there's nothing evolved about having lost that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know. Totally. Um, so. Yeah, the stoned ape theory, very, very interesting. I think there's probably something to it, at least in some manner, shape, or form. But it's not just about the experiences these things elicited. You know, its it, it wasn't just experiences that grew the human brain. And yeah, there are neurogenic, um, for instance, uh, psilocybin has neurogenic potential. It's able to help the brain grow new brain cells and all that kind of thing. So... Part of the temptation in in those theorists, and I really respect people like Terrence McKenna and Paul Stamets, some of my favorite people ever. But I think that they're missing the point a little bit when when they want to think that well, the brain has grown simply because of our uh, gravitation toward those things. It's it's not just the experience or the or the mushroom itself. The mushroom mushrooms don't really give your brain the substrate. of of your, they don't really give your brain anything structural, right? They don't really give your brain anything from the standpoint of of the foundational substrate necessary for higher cognition. They elicit altered states of experience, but it takes a bigger brain to make unique sense of those experiences. And when you look at structure and composition of the brain, you have to look at, you know, our brains are constructed from the very fats that we supply it with, with what it is we choose to eat. Hmm. So it's a combination.
1: The, uh, one last thing. So we, we, we got to wrap up, but, um, one of the things I, I took out of the primal fat burner book was that I've find super fascinating is kind of like the obsession that we have with eating, um, lean meat well, you know and how that used to be you know originally that was like back in the day it was like the organs were really prized and the fatty parts of the, of the animal were really prized and like the camel hump and like all these yeah things, yeah right you know whereas now somehow again this this interesting deviation happened i wonder if this could be in correlation to the other deviations we're talking about but uh, as opposed to that being given to the dogs or given to the you know whatever all right of a sudden, like that's the prized stuff and we switched it now we give the other stuff to the dogs.
0: <laughs> well, you know, right, right. So, but it's it's so the whole focus on lean meat came from some of the earliest research into, you know, that that you can kind of trace back to the humble beginnings of the paleo movement, right? The popular paleo diet movement, and what these researchers did was they went around to, uh, and and they looked at kind of what kinds of things indigenous cultures were eating and oh yeah they're hunting antelope and they you know this and that and the other thing and here's the composition and it's all about you know low fat and lean meat and whatever and and forgetting completely that for at least 2.6 million years as an evolving species we shared the planet with the with these enormous um Pleistocene megafauna that we that we hunted in preference to almost anything else. That you know, a woolly mammoth would have a body fat composition of at least 50% uh, body fat. They extrapolate this from you know from elephants and and whatever else, and we would have gobbled all that up. You know, we had, and the larger the animal, usually the higher the fat content, um, and it's what we hunted in preference to almost anything else. One of the things. That I noticed only after unfortunately I handed my manuscript in and i 'll kick myself for the rest of my life on that one. Um, I was preparing a talk, and in that preparation, I was doing some searching online for uh, pictures of cave paintings, you know just to kind of for that for that lovely ambiance I love cave paintings and I was looking at massive numbers of pictures of cave paintings, and I realized something that I had never really quite seen or thought about before. You know, these... these The people that created them were amazing artists. They were fully capable of depicting things very accurately. But And when they depicted humans, for the most part, um, uh, they depicted us pretty accurately. Or when they depicted uh, predators, you know, like cave lions and things like that, they depicted them pretty accurately. But when they depicted animals that we would normally want to hunt they depicted them as being like not just unnaturally but freakishly fat we're talking about these big you know macy's day parade bubble bodies and tiny little sticks for feet Interesting. And, and and it seems this you know you see this in chauvi in altamira in lascaux you know all of the major places around the world and you know in rock art throughout the world where the animals that we hunted in prehistoric times uh, that we we tended to depict them as being really unnaturally fat, I mean, like freakishly fat. And, you know, if you look at, I mean, cave art today is, for the most part, understood by those that study it as being shamanic in nature. And so it stands to reason that what they were depicting on these cave walls were things that they either most greatly revered or idealized in terms of what it was that they most hoped to be able to successfully hunt and um you know kind of like i sometimes call it a prehistoric vision board right and um yeah i we weren't just we weren't just hunting for meat we were hunting for fat fat has always been the most coveted and selected for food and and if you're a fan of of Weston Price at all, and, and a lot of what he discovered in his work, you know, he covered the globe um, over 100,000 miles over 10 years, uh, really researching and studying whatever available indigenous and traditional societies were happening at that time, you know, the late you know, around the 1930s, um, and obviously there were really different diets among all these different groups where people seem to be pretty robustly healthy and so what what all too many people have taken away from that is this idea of well just eat real food and it's all good but what Weston Price did was he asked himself a really important question among all these you know different people groups living in different ecosystems in different climates and different environments with different available foods what were the things that they had in common and there were two major things they had in common. All of them where people were optimally healthy number one they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them and the healthier they were the you know greater diversity of the animal foods that they had hmm. uh, and number two um, in every single instance where there was optimal health um, they the most important the most sacred the most venerated foods uh, in any given culture, were always those foods that were the highest in both fat and fat-soluble nutrients. And so what we're looking at there is the kind of core foundational substrate for literally every optimized human diet. And beyond that, the rest is nuance. There, You know, if if a culture was eating a whole lot of other things, certain things may either have serve to enhance or possibly compromise the benefits gotten from the, the keeping those foundations intact. And a lot of that would have depended on, you know, how well they did on those other foods would have depended on, you know, the degree to which the primary foundations were in place.
1: Yeah. So thank you so much. What, um, how can people find more about you? How do people find the book? I'm sure it's anywhere books are at. What's,
0: Right, so you know, I have I have a um, actually three books out: Primal Body, Primal Mind. That was the one that started it all, and um, that's you know been read by a lots and you know hundreds, well over hundred thousand people. Um, and then I have an ebook called Re- Rethinking Fatigue: What Your Adrenals Are Really Telling You and What You Can Do About It. That is largely um, geared toward bringing the whole subject of a what people like to think of as adrenal fatigue and adrenal exhaustion into the light of the 21st century and kind of debunk the myth of adrenal fatigue and adrenal burnout um and then my newest book primal fat burner which was published uh, this last january by simon and schuster is you know all of these are available in in bookstores well Except for my e- my ebook is only available as an ebook, right? Online. It's but it's available in all of the e-reader formats, Kindle or whatever. But both Primal Body, Primal Mind, and Primal Fat Burner are available in, in all the bookstores, are available in all of the online places, the usual online places, and um, and also in ebook formats. And Primal Fat Burner is also available. Uh, in an audiobook format. It's my first book available as an audiobook as well. Who read it? Not me. Um, I would have been happy to have read it, but the way the publishing industry works in that regard is they would have paid me all of $1,000 and I would have had to fly out to New York for like a whole week to do that kind of marathon recording. Mm -hmm. And it just it just didn't make sense for me to do that so the person reading it's great well yeah there was there were two different versions actually of the audiobook the first one that the publisher um found that and and they were supposed to consult with me on who they found before they actually went ahead with it and they forgot to oh man and then it came out and it's like yeah and it was somebody who didn't know how to pronounce the words right and who oh had man. kind of an annoying <laughs> grating voice and whatever. And so I had a meeting with them, and they agreed to re-record the whole thing. And they f- we found somebody who is much better cool. at narrating. So, okay. um, And the new version of the audiobook actually does come with also a PDF of the meal plan and recipes and things like that.
1: Which so I've personally gotten to indulge upon. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievably (laughs) delicious. That's cool. Seriously, yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're You're so welcome.
0: Oh, and I do want to mention one more thing. I have an online educational program called Primal Restoration, and it's a weekly educational series um, that covers a lot of the major health topics that people are wrestling with, and it's providing extremely cutting-edge information that allows people basically to, ta- to uniquely take charge of uh, their own health and the understanding of their own health so that not only are they better able to manage whatever uh, and, and not just maybe help prevent uh, the prospect of illness but also help to better manage whatever things they may happen to be struggling with, but also be empowered, much more empowered to... Uh, to play a more interactive role with healthcare providers when it comes to optimizing treatment. And so I'm really proud of the program. It's it's some of my best work. I, everybody that's enrolled in it right now supplies me with glowing testimonials of not just how helpful the information is, but how it's transformed them and their families. And there there are a lot of practitioners that are enrolled as well. And if you're a nutritional therapy practitioner, you can get CEUs for you know, for being enrolled in, in my course. And also I'm working now also a CEU deal with the National Association of Nutrition Professionals, NANP, which is a national uh, board certifying body for nutritional uh, practitioners. So uh, anyway... Uh, Just go to primalrestoration.com and then my other website, primalbody-primalmind.com for lots of cool
1: stuff. Thank thank you so much.
0: You're so welcome, Aaron. It's just always a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Uh, What's next on the agenda now?
0: Next oh. on the agenda. So um, Stop Yeah. Align Podcast.
1: Thank you guys so much for tuning into the podcast. If you want to support what we are doing and you are digging it, um, one thing you can do is you can jump onto aligntherapy.com and grab yourself an Align band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band and a door anchor, and it um, comes with an instructional video guide and break down decompression of those joints, self-care stuff, exercise stuff. It's great. Um, some free things that you guys can do, one of which would be... Be, as we mentioned utilizing the Amazon affiliate link top hand right hand corner of the podcast page and uh just bookmark that thing anytime you purchase crap on Amazon we get about six or seven percent of that costs you nothing and um also you could jump on to audibletrialcom slash align to get yourself a free audible audio book and a free month subscription costs you absolutely nothing and kicks us down some some scratch um Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate your support and uh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for tuning in. Wouldn't be possible without you and look forward to seeing you next week.